Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, September 30th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, when's the perfect time to get a flu shot from the Atlantic? And shock absorber for the knee shows promise in clinical trial from New Atlas. Plus, please don't cook chicken in NyQuil from NPR News. And more time permitting. Here's our first report. When's the perfect time to get a flu shot? Experts can't agree by Catherine J. Wu from The Atlantic. For about 60 years, health authorities in the United States have been championing a routine for at least some sector of the public, a yearly flu shot. That recommendation now applies to every American over the age of six months, and for many of us, flu vaccines have become a fixture of fall. The logic of that timeline seems solid enough. A shot in the autumn preps the body for each winter's circulating viral strains. But years into researching flu immunity, experts have yet to reach a consensus on the optimal time to receive the vaccine, or even the number of injections that should be doled out. Each year, a new flu shot recipe debuts in the U.S. sometime around July or August. And according to the CDC, the best time for most people to show up for an injection is about now, preferably no sooner than September, ideally no later than the end of October. Many healthcare systems require their employees to get the shot in this time frame as well. But those who opt to follow the CDC current guidelines, as I recently did, then mention that fact in a forum frequented by a bunch of experts, as I also recently did, might rapidly hear that they've made a terrible, terrible choice. There's no way I would do what you did, one virologist texted me. It's poor advice to get the flu vaccine now, he texted. Florian Kramer, a virologist at Mount Sinai's Icon School of Medicine, echoed that sentiment in a tweet. I think it is too early to get a flu shot. When I prodded other experts to share their scheduling preferences, I found that some are September shooters, but others won't juice up till December or later. One vaccinologist I spoke with goes totally avant-garde and nabs multiple doses a year. There is definitely such a thing as getting a flu shot too early, as Helen Branswell has reported for STAT. After people get their vaccine, levels of antibodies rocket up, buoying protection against both infection and disease. But after only weeks, the number of those molecules begins to steadily tick downward, raising people's risk of developing a symptomatic case of flu by about 6 to 18 percent, various studies have found. On average, people can expect that a good portion of their anti-flu antibodies are meaningfully gone by about three or so months after a shot, says Lauren Rada, an immunologist at the University of Washington. That decline is why some researchers, Kramer among them, think that September and even October shots could be premature, especially if flu activity peaks well after winter begins. In about three-quarters of the flu seasons from 1982 to 2020, the virus didn't hit its apex until January or later. 
Kramer, for one, told me that he usually waits until at least late November to dose up. Stanley Plotkin, a 90-year-old vaccinologist and vaccine consultant, has a different solution. People in his age group, over 65, don't respond as well to vaccines in general and seem to lose protection more rapidly. So for the past several years, Plotkin has doubled up on flu shots, getting one sometime before Halloween and another in January to ensure he's chock full of antibodies throughout the entire risky, wintry season. The higher the titers, or antibody levels, Plotkin told me, the better the efficacy, so I'm trying to take advantage of that, he said. He made clear to me that he wasn't making recommendations for the rest of the world, just playing the odds given his age. Data on doubling up is quite sparse, but Ben Cowling, an epidemiologist and flu researcher at Hong Kong University, has been running a years-long study to figure out whether offering two vaccines a year, separated by roughly six months, could keep vulnerable people safe for longer. His target population is Hong Kongers, who often experience multiple annual flu peaks, one seeded by the Northern Hemisphere's winter wave and another by the Southern Hemisphere's. So far, getting that second dose seems to give you additional protection, Cowling told me, and it seems like there's no harm of getting vaccinated twice a year apart from the financial and logistical cost of a double rollout. In the U.S., though, flu season is usually synonymous with winter, and the closer together two shots are given, the more blunted the effects of the second injection might be. People who are already bustling with antibodies may obliterate a second shot's contents before the vaccine has a chance to teach immune cells anything new. That might be why several studies that have looked at double-dosing flu shots within weeks of each other showed no benefit in older people and certain immunocompromised groups, Poland told me. One exception, organ transplant recipients. Kids getting their very first flu shot are also supposed to get two of them, four weeks apart. Even at the three-ish month mark past vaccination, the body's anti-flu defenses don't reset to zero, Rodit told me. Shots shore up B cells and T cells, which can survive for many months or years in various anatomical nooks and crannies. Those arsenals are especially hefty in people who have banked a lifetime of exposures to flu viruses and vaccines, and they can guard people against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, even after an antibody surge has faded. A recent study found that vaccine protection against flu hospitalizations ebbed by less than 10% a month after people got their shot, though the rates among adults older than 65 were a smidge higher. Still, other numbers barely noted any changes in post-vaccine safeguards against symptomatic flu cases of a range of severities, at least within the first few months. I do think the best protection is within three months of vaccination, Cowling told me, but there's still a good amount by six months, he said. For some young, healthy adults, a decent number of flu antibodies may actually stick around for more than a year. You can test my blood right now, Rada told me. I haven't gotten vaccinated just yet this year, and I have detectable titers, Rada said. Ali Elabadi, an immunologist at Washington University in St. Louis, told me he has found that some people who have regularly received flu vaccines have almost no antibody bump when they get a fresh shot. 
their blood is already hopping with the molecules. Pre-existing immunity also seems to be a big reason that nasal spray-based flu vaccines don't work terribly well in adults, whose airways have hosted far more flu viruses than children's. Getting a second flu shot in a single season is pretty unlikely to hurt, but Elevetti compares it to taking out a second insurance policy on a car that's rarely driven, likely of quite marginal benefit for most people. Plus, because it's not a sanctioned flu vaccine regimen, pharmacists might be reluctant to acquiesce, Poland pointed out. Double dosing probably wouldn't stand much of a chance as an official CDC recommendation either. We do a bad enough job, Poland said, getting Americans to take even one dose a year. That's why the push to vaccinate in late summer and early fall is so essential for the single shot we currently have, says Huang McLean, a vaccine researcher at the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute in Wisconsin. People get busy, and health systems are making sure that most people can get protected before the season starts, she told me. Elevetti, who's usually a September vaccinator, told me he doesn't see the point of delaying vaccination for fear of having a lower antibody level in February. Flu seasons are unpredictable, with some starting as early as October, and the viruses aren't usually keen on giving their hosts a heads up. That makes dilly-dallying a risk. Put the shot off till November or December, and you might get infected in between, Elabetti said or simply forget to make an appointment at all, especially as the holidays draw near. In the future, improvements to flu shot tech could help cleave off some of the ambiguity. Higher doses of vaccine, which are given to older people, could rile up the immune system to a greater degree. The same could be true for more provocative vaccines made with ingredients called adjuvants that trip more of the body's defensive sensors. Injections such as those seem to maintain higher antibody titers year-round, says Sophie Valkenberg, an immunologist at Hong Kong University and the University of Melbourne, a trend that Elevetti attributes to the body investing more resources in training its fighters against what it perceives to be a larger threat. Such a switch would likely come with a cost, though, McLean said. Higher doses and adjuvants also mean more adverse events, more reactions to the vaccine, McLean said. For now, the only obvious choice, Rada told me, is to definitely get vaccinated this year. After the past two flu seasons, one essentially absent and one super light, and with flu vaccination rates still lackluster, Americans are more likely than not in immunity deficit. Flu vaccination rates have also ticked downward since the coronavirus pandemic began, which means there may be an argument for erring on the early side this season, if only to ensure that people reinforce their defenses against severe disease, Rada said. Plus, Australia's recent flu season, often a bellwether for ours, arrived ahead of schedule. Even so, people who vaccinate too early could end up sicker in late winter in the same way that people who vaccinate too late could end up sicker now. Plotkin told me that staying apprised of the epidemiology helps. If I heard influenza outbreaks were starting to occur now, I would go and get my first dose, he said. But timing remains a gamble, subject to the virus's whims. Flu is ornery and unpredictable and often unwilling to be forecasted at all. Up next... 
shock absorber for the knee implant shows promise in clinical trial by Ben Coxworth from New Atlas. Treatments for osteoarthritis-related knee pain range from store-bought medication all the way up to total knee joint replacement. The recently trialed Misha knee system is intended to help fill the gap between those extremes by acting as an implanted shock absorber. Manufactured by California-based company Moximed, the Misha device looks not unlike a miniature version of the type of shock you might see on a car. Anchored to the inner sides of the femur and tibia bones alongside the knee joint, it incorporates a steel piston on top, which slides in and out of a flexible polymer cylinder on the bottom. When the piston compresses the cylinder on the downstroke, the cylinder responds by bulging outward along the sides, absorbing much of the energy that would otherwise go into the joint. As a result, the implant is claimed to reduce peak forces on the knee by over 30% with every step. According to Moximed, the Misha is implanted under the skin via a single incision in an outpatient procedure. Once the device is in place, it doesn't place any restrictions on the knee's range of motion or weight-bearing capabilities. It also leaves the bones, tendons, and the cartilage intact, so future alternative treatments are still possible. Back in 2019, when it was known as the Calypso, the Misha was implanted on a total of 81 knee pain patients as part of a multi-center clinical trial led by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. The results of that trial were recently announced after the test subjects had lived with the implant for three years. According to Ohio State, over 90% of the participants experienced a significant reduction in pain scores and improvement in function scores. Overall, the device had an 86% success rate, which is claimed to be better than the success rate for a commonly performed surgical procedure known as a high tibial osteotomy. It involves realigning the knee joint by cutting a wedge of bone out of the tibia. The trial data has been submitted to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and is now under regulatory review. There's no word on when the Misha knee system may be widely available. Up next, please don't cook chicken in NyQuil, the FDA asks TikTok users, by Matt Adams from NPR News. Cooking chicken in NyQuil cold medicine doesn't sound very appetizing, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration wants you to know that it's definitely not safe either. The agency has issued a warning about videos that have surfaced on TikTok challenging people to cook chicken in NyQuil, which contains acetaminophen, dextromethorphan, and doxylamine, or similar over-the-counter cough and cold medications, according to the FDA. Boiling a medication can make it much more concentrated and change its properties in other ways, the warning said. Even if you don't eat the chicken, inhaling the medication's vapors while cooking could cause high levels of the drugs to enter your body. It could also hurt your lungs, the warning said. TikTok has already slapped a warning on the challenge known as hashtag sleepy chicken. When searching for related videos on TikTok, users are greeted with the following message. Some online challenges can be dangerous, disturbing, or even fabricated. 
learn how to recognize harmful challenges so you can protect your health and well-being, the message says. NyQuil chicken was supposed to be a joke. Although hashtag sleepy chicken has recently taken off on TikTok, the image of NyQuil-soaked chicken has been floating around the Internet for years. In 2017, Twitter user Tristan Depew tweeted out an image of chicken in NyQuil. The tweet was a joke, and there was not an intention of eating the chicken or asking others to do the same, Depew told NPR. I have seen it on Tic Tac, which is a bit more concerning because the audience of my original tweet, which I do think started it all, is notably older, Depew said. There is something to be said about the concern that the children over on TikTok might not treat this with as much caution, he said. Personally, seeing that this was only now addressed over five years later, it's just another example of the FDA's dangerous lack of urgency and oversight when it comes to the public's health and well-being, Depew said. When reached for comment regarding the FDA's warning, Procter & Gamble issued the following statement. At P&G, consumer safety is our number one priority, and we do not endorse any inappropriate use of our product. NyQuil is an over-the-counter medication that treats nighttime symptoms of the common cold and flu. It should only be taken as directed using the dosage cup provided. Adults and children 12 years and over, 30 milliliters every six hours, not to exceed four doses per 24 hours, the statement says. Harmful eating challenges like hashtag sleepy chicken follow previous dangerous trends such as 2018's Tide Pod Challenge and the Cinnamon Challenge, which peaked in 2012. Up next, year-long exercise study reveals surprising impacts on mental health by Nick Lavars from New Atlas. We've seen studies offer valuable insights into different ways exercise can be beneficial for brain health, from combating depression to fighting dementia to boosting our memory. New research has approached this topic with a long-term view, tapping into a year's worth of Fitbit data to gauge the impacts of different types of physical activity and turned up some interesting results. The study is the handiwork of scientists at Dartmouth College who set out to dig into the nuances of exercise's effects on brain function and mental health. They sought to expand on studies in this area that had examined the effects of exercise over periods of days or weeks by instead drawing on data from 113 Fitbit users across a 12-month period. Across that year, those users were also made to answer questions about their mental health and perform different memory tests. The fitness data included daily step tallies, average heart rates, and how much time spent exercising in different heart rate zones. The memory tasks, meanwhile, were designed to individually test the ability to remember autobiographical events, locations, and connections between concepts and other memories. The results demonstrated how complicated the relationship between exercise and brain health is. While the researchers had expected to find a general positive trend between higher physical activity and memory and mental health, it wasn't quite that simple. Lower-intensity exercise brought improvements to specific memory tasks, while high-intensity exercise brought improvements specifically to others. More surprisingly, those undertaking more high-intensity exercise reported higher stress levels. 
Those undertaking lower-intensity exercise, meanwhile, reported lower rates of anxiety and depression. Mental health and memory are central to nearly everything we do in our everyday lives, says lead author Jeremy Manning. Our study is trying to build a foundation for understanding how different intensities of physical exercise affect different aspects of mental and cognitive health, he said. Though it is early days for the research and the study was unable to reveal any causal effects, the scientists believe further work could lead to exciting new tools to manage cognitive health. Just as you might perform a particular workout in the gym to strengthen a particular muscle group, you might have a workout program tailored to keep anxiety at bay or boost your learning and memory ahead of exam season. When it comes to physical activity, memory, and mental health, there's a really complicated dynamic at play that cannot be summarized in single sentences like walking improves your memory or stress hurts your memory, says Manning. Instead, specific forms of physical activity and specific aspects of mental health seem to affect each aspect of memory differently, he says. The research was published in the journal Scientific Reports. Up next, Why Ryan Reynolds is Telling People to Get a Colonoscopy, by Juliana Kim from NPR. What began as a friendly bet between Hollywood actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney turned into a life-saving, teachable moment. I made a bet, I lost, but it still paid off, Reynolds wrote on YouTube as part of a public awareness campaign for colon cancer. It all started last year when the pair, who co-own a Welsh soccer club, made a bet of whether McElhenney could learn to speak Welsh. If McElhenney, who stars in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, won the wager, Reynolds agreed to publicly film his colonoscopy. But while keeping his side of the bargain, Reynolds' doctor detected a benign polyp, tissue growths which can be a precursor to cancer. Reynolds, who has three kids and is expecting a fourth, had no symptoms of a growing polyp, and it was extremely subtle before it was removed, his doctor said in a video posted about the experience. This was potentially life-saving for you. I'm not kidding, Reynolds' doctor told the actor. McElhenney also decided to have a colonoscopy, and his doctor removed three polyps, which is shown later in the video. Colon cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S., but it is highly preventable through early screenings. Here's what you need to know. When to schedule a colonoscopy. In most cases, adults between the ages of 45 to 75 should be scheduling routine colonoscopies every 10 years, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force found. Some people younger than 45 are recommended to get screened if they have inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease, a personal or family history of colon cancer, or a genetic syndrome that causes polyp growth, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. People with these conditions should also get screened more often, the American Cancer Society says. It's important to get screened sooner rather than later, experts said. In fact, colon cancer is the leading cause of cancer deaths for people under 50, according to the National Cancer Institute. Recent studies show that screening colonoscopies can reduce the relative risk of getting colon cancer by 52% and the risk of dying from it by 62%. What to expect with the screening itself? 
Colonoscopies involve a long, thin, flexible tube to check for polyps or cancer inside the rectum and entire colon. If polyps are detected, similar to Reynolds and McElhenney's case, doctors will also use the time to remove them. Polyps tend to be common. More than 40% of adults over age 50 have precancerous polyps in their colon, according to the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. The procedure generally takes 30 minutes to an hour. Colonoscopies are one of several ways to get screened for colon cancer, including non-invasive stool tests and sigmoidoscopies, which involve a short, thin tube put in the rectum to check the lower third of the colon. The CDC recommends patients talk to their doctors about which test is right for you. Colonoscopies are supposed to be free, but patients have reported getting billed. What to do if it happens to you? Preventive health care like mammograms and colonoscopies are meant to be free of charge to patients under the Affordable Care Act, but there are some exceptions. Some patients may be billed for the procedure if it's for diagnosis versus screening purposes. That distinction is often decided by doctors and hospitals. For instance, people with a family history of colon cancer or a personal history of polyps are likely to have a higher risk of cancer and therefore see their colonoscopy classified as diagnostic. It's important to note polyp removals are usually not enough to be considered diagnostic under the law. Because there's little federal oversight around this provision, the onus is up to the patient to ensure they are billed correctly. Experts recommend checking for any coverage minefields that would allow providers to charge for polyp removal. Contact the insurer prior to the colonoscopy and say, hey, I just want to understand what the coverage limitations are and what my out-of-pocket costs might be. Anna Howard, a policy principal at the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network, told Kaiser Health News. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.